And second, let us warn you in advance, you're liable to experience us just a little different than other meetings of other fellowships you may have attended. The primary reason that's liable to happen is we intend for you to have a very different experience here. What we do here is we take a look at the suggested instruction for a step or so a week, directly out of this book, and we use this book in 12-step recovery. Why? Yeah, the process described by the authors of this book has been proven to work for addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances. Yeah? So what we try and do here is I'm going to try and show you how I find my experience in the book and encourage you to have your experience with the book. And we do that because it's a book of experience. It's, a, it's their testimony. And so we try and find ourselves in their position because they gave us some promises Rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path and so, so forth, yeah? So the other thing I should tell you, how many of your members here, and this is the first time you've gotten to come, any members here? So if, if you guys are here and you've not been here before, your family's welcome to join you at this session. They're also welcome to join you on Saturday for Recovery Church. And if some of you here want to work with others in our facility and come embrace some of our men and women returning back, then come to the Monday night group because we, we do a Monday night group where they break down the steps a little more than what we're doing here and they spend time one-on-one -on -one helping people understand you know, our belief in the 12-step approach and that kind of thing, yeah? So tonight, fortunately or unfortunately, what we're gonna do is we're gonna revisit step one. And no matter how many times I've gone through the step one experience, I have had at least some remnants of a shitty experience. So I'll apologize in advance if you experience some lows, if you experience some tears. That's not where we intend to leave you, but it's the reality of the situation. If you come out of a step where you've admitted powerlessness and unmanageability and it's all grins and giggles, you probably missed something, right? All right, so, so I'm going to start first to give you some idea why we do what we do. Um, the name of the book, everyone calls it affectionately the big book, but really the name of the book is Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and, of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And the reason I want you to know that is why we hold what these people witness to, what they testify about, to be should be above our touch. They don't really care about your experience or my experience because this is the experience that has spawned the millions of people who are in recovery today. So we don't adulterate that in any way if, if we can avoid it because we don't have a right to change another person's testimony. And there is power in testimony. Okay? So I also like to show people the forward to the first edition to give you a little more insight into why we do this. The forward to the first edition tells us something about the we that we see on the walls of many meetings. How many of you have seen the steps on a wall in a meeting hall? Do you see the we in there? Have you ever had anyone point to the we and say, see, we're a we program? I've heard that, and, and I know they mean well, but it's a deception. The we on the wall is the we they're about to describe in this forward, and it ain't us, right? So it says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we've recovered is the main purpose of the book. 
these authors argued over every word. So they said the words they meant and they meant the words they said. They didn't say to tell other alcoholics, they said to show other alcoholics. So we show people in our walk and we also sit down and show them how we find our experience in this book. Does it make sense? Someone showed me, I had never to show you. All right, and then it's, uh, I think what I'm gonna do is jump from there to the forward to the second edition real quick. And I wanna go to XVII of the book. And I'll give you one more reason why we like to hold the witness in this book sacrosanct from people's opinions and spins because I think there's some misconceptions about what this book is. It's, there's no power in the book, but the power of their testimony resonates within us to this day. Because testimony isn't bound by time and space. So... It says uh, on that page, the bottom paragraph, it was now time the struggling groups thought to place their message and unique experience before the world. So they're talking about 1939 and beyond. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the publication of this volume. So now we're in the, I'm reading you the forward to the second edition, which came out in 1955. So they're witnessing to that 15-year span, and they're taking us back to the beginning. It makes sense to 39 when this was published. The membership had then reached about 100 men and women. So the first 100, and they witnessed to the recovery of the first several thousand. Make sense now? And then it, it says, the fledgling society, which had been nameless, now began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. So... The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous was named after the book of Alcoholics Anonymous in which the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is described. So when people say, I'm in the program, oh, you know, you mean you're in the fellowship. And we're not splitting hairs. You're not in the program by sitting in a chair. Because that's not going to produce the experience that these people witnessed to. Does that make sense? We're not telling anyone what they should do. We just want everyone to understand the misdirection that has gone on so that we can help them understand why they might. Any, anyone of you had more than one go at this? Okay. So it may be because we, we couldn't hear, and it may be because there's some deception that's prevalent. And not intentionally. I'm not saying that. It just is. So if you're not in the book, you're not in the program. And if you're not doing what it says, you're not in the program. Does that make sense? It's not enough to quote it. You've got to do what it says. Be a doer of the word. For my more, for that other book that y'all might study. And why do we do all of that? Well, I'm not going to go through all those stats, but what they go on to describe is of the first bunch that came, 50% sobered up right away, and... Shortly thereafter, after a few bounces, another 25%. So back in 1939 all the way to 1955, they had a 65% efficacy, and now we're running around three. In spite of all the advances in medical science, and the only thing I can imagine is what we did is we took the power out through deception. So we want to introduce the power back, and that's why we do what we do. Some of you are feeling that power as I... 
declare that power, yes? Okay, so now we're going to jump over to the doctor's opinion. And I'm going to go to the, the very opening page and look at a couple things. We haven't done that in a while. The doctor's opinion, we of Alcoholics Anonymous, that's XXV for those of you following in a book, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. So they wrote a plan of recovery that did not necessarily involve medical people because it wasn't a medical diagnosis back in the day, but they thought some people would want a doctor to at least give an opinion on the soundness of what these people discovered in their process. Does any of that make sense to you? Some people would just like to know what a doctor thinks of what I'm embarking on given that I'm dying of my addiction. Any of you get to a place where you're, you were dying but you didn't much give a shit? Okay. Um, convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had the experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to hell. So they're not going to just any doctor, they're going to doctors who treated people with addiction even when addiction was not considered an illness and they're going to ask the medical opinion based on this experience of these medical people who saw people, alcoholics, addicts of the hopeless variety who were restored to health and give their opinion on that experience. Does that make sense? Okay. So a well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. To whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. Now that doesn't sound like much today, but remember alcoholism wasn't considered an illness back in 1930s. So to have specialized in it for a lot of years and dealt with addicts and to alcohol and other substances, this guy had a heart to serve the hopeless. Make sense? Okay. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. What do you think when the doctor who specializes in addiction considers your case hopeless? Any of you ever got such a diagnosis? Some of us have had that diagnosis. Yes? Okay. Um, in the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. How many of you have bounced again once or twice? Did you feel a little diminished when you came back sometimes? Okay, so if you did and you're feeling a little diminished now, the author of this book, the, or the predominant portions of this book, had a few goes at it himself, okay? Um, so don't be so hard on yourself. All of it's preparing you to deliver a powerful testimony, okay? So as part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. So he's talking about Bill Wilson, and Bill Wilson was a patient at this mental hospital, and let me ask you this. Any of you been a patient in a mental hospital? Did any of you ask the doctors there if you could talk to the other patients? They let him. They let him, right? Interesting. 
They made a way. There has been, this has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. So that's the medical estimate. He regarded him as hopeless. The hopeless man had this encounter and this process that he wanted to tell others about. They let him do it, and now 100 of them have recovered. Crazy, huh? I'm going to jump from there to the next page, XXVI, and I'm now, the alcoholics are going to give their opinion of the doctor's opinion. And I want to differentiate so you understand what's happening. We got the doctor's estimate of our program of recovery, and now we're going to take a look at the original 100's opinion of the doctor's opinion and see if we can relate as laymen to what they thought about the opinion that they had from the doctor. Make sense? Okay. So the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, the one that follows, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. What does it mean when they tell us, one alcoholic to another, that we must believe this? Because this is a suggestive program. Feel the emphasis of that? Okay. That the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. This is where a lot of people struggle. They don't believe addiction, addictive disorder, and illness. And they, they think it's a matter of weak will or flawed character or whatever, and they'll die in their addiction rather than receive the help that's already, the way's already been made for your redemption. But you, you're going to need to come to believe that, so I must know I need a healing, so I'll seek the healer. Make sense? Okay. So... It tells us that it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life. How many of you have been told you were maladjusted to life? How many of you agreed to some degree? But how many of you thought there was more to it than that? Okay, so it didn't satisfy them and it doesn't satisfy you, right? That we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we're sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So what we've done oftentimes in counseling sessions and therapeutic settings like this in our modern rooms is we focus on the mental obsession and, and we, we talk about bringing, you know, just if you haven't can't remember your last drink, you haven't had it yet, and if you want to drink, play the tapes. We focus on these things like they can inventory their thoughts and come up with a good decision, even though they're demonstrably crazy when they get to us. True? Okay. So, they knew that then, is the reason I point that out. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. So how many of you have been interested by the doctor's theory that we have an allergy, and how many of you dismissed it? How many of you were confused by it? You hear the jokes over the years, right? I drink, I drink, break out in handcuffs. <laughs> right? So it just confuses. So let's go a little further and see what they're saying. As laymen, our opinion to its soundness may, of course, mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that this explanation makes good sense, 
It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Who, who of you are drinkers? Got some drinkers here. When you drank, did you find that alcohol energized you? Yes. Okay, well that's an abnormal reaction to a sedative. Now, a, a doctor watching that would use medical language to explain that may be the manifestation of an allergy. That, that's an abnormal reaction. Where's my opiate addicts here? Fentanyl, heroin. How many of you got a hold of that and got very energetic? That's an abnormal reaction to a powerful sedative. Yes? So now do you... Do you understand what they're talking about when they're talking about, the doctors talking about we may have an allergy? It's not a joke. It's an observable response to a chemical. It's an abnormal reaction, a manifestation of an allergy. Okay. All right. So, um, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say this explanation makes good sense. So do I have some ex-problem drinkers? Does it make a little more sense now? Okay. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Though we work out our solution as, on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery or befogged. Why? It's better if you get your mind cleared before you work, and you're still going to experience that phenomenon of craving for days until it's out of your system, and you're not going to be safe, and detoxing from alcohol particularly is very dangerous, depending on how, okay? All right, so more often than not, it's imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he's approached, as he has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So they say more often than not, and then they'll tell you in Bill's story how he was drunk as hell when Abby approached him. So it's not a requirement, but it works better if you're sober when we approach. Make sense? Okay. So I'm going to jump now into the doctor's opinion. The doctor writes, um, the, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years' experience as a medical director, one of the oldest hospitals in the country, treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. So he read their manuscript and he agreed with their approach. Okay? Um, as we doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. With what with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we're perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Do you understand what they're talking about, synthetic knowledge? Everything they learned in a book won't cure the hopeless but we do have a healer that does cure the hopeless. So it says many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practice or practical application right away. So they're talking about Bill starting to talk to the patients. 
And then I'm going to jump from there to the bottom of that page. It says, of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. So the manifestation of craving, the inability to stop once I start, progressive loss of control. Any of you relate to that? Okay. And that said, this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. Back to Sean's point. Okay. So we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So ask yourself, have you ever ingested whatever with the intention of doing less than you ended up doing? Because if that ever happened, you're not a moderate. We don't know that you're an alcoholic, but we know you are not moderate. Who's out there thinking, well, it happens sometimes, but it doesn't happen every time? You're out there. Who's thinking that? Okay. If it doesn't happen every time, do you know which time? Then did you ever really have control? Remember they tell us later, cunning, baffling, powerful. Okay. Good deal. I knew you were out there. Thanks for raising your hand telling me. Okay. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it. Have you found you've formed a habit you cannot break? Once having lost their self-confidence, would you describe that you may have lost your self-confidence in this regard? Yeah. A lot of people don't like to say I lost my self-confidence, but we're talking about may not have lost your self-confidence in other areas. You just lose your self-confidence in your ability to do the right thing where drugs and alcohol are concerned. Okay? Um, and then it says, it says their reliance upon things human. How many of you had people that cared about you that noticed that things were getting a little dark and said, if you loved me, you'd stop? And you loved them. And you didn't stop. Okay, so my reliance on things human to straighten me out has failed me at this point. Yes? Okay. Their problems piled up on them and became astonishingly difficult to solve. Has that happened? Yeah. Any of you had a problem pile up? <laughs> okay. It says frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. How many of you begged, you cried? How many of you begged and cried? Any of you just prayed to a God you did not know and cried and cried and cried and said, deliver me from me and to no avail? Any of you? Okay. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So we, we've taken the varnish off. We are going to have to come to believe in power. And we're going to then grow in consciousness of that power. And then we're going to be informed by that power. And we're going to grow, around, grow into a more awakened state. Yes? Okay. So I want to jump to the bottom of the page. It says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Is that true? So I'd like to point out to you they said men and women, not alcoholics. Liking the effect, everyone does, or they don't, but I mean, 
anyone that drinks more than once likes the effect. Not everyone has the same effect I have. Does that make sense? Like, I went and drank with people who liked the effects, but they went home and I went and lived under a bush. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. Did you find that true? Yes. Had a hard time figuring out what you really believed? Yeah. They tell us a little clue they knew way back then that we don't tell people today often enough. It says that they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see other people taking with impunity. So how many of you are sitting in here sober tonight? Good, a high percentage of you. That's a good start. <laughs> how many of you can bring to consciousness, to your awareness, that sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks? You breathe it in, and you're sitting here sober. So we can bring that to consciousness right now, many years sober. So the solution has never been abstinence, even though the answer was abstinence. Because we will be restless, irritable, and discontented unless we can again experience ease and comfort. And we will constantly be like missiles aimed for ease and comfort for the rest of our life until we find out that the ease and comfort we need is found within us. Does that make sense? Okay. So... It says here that after they've succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, the phenomenon of craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. How many of you have done that? Didn't want to drink. Don't pick up no matter what. Oops, I'm drunk. Oh, shit. I hate myself. Oh, well, drink more. Not going to do that again. How many times have you done that? This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. All right, so what I want to do from there, so we've enough of the doctor's opinion. We've all had doctor's opinions. Let's, let's take a look at Bill's story. Yeah, I've got to go to five trying to figure out where I want to be. Okay, so Bill is going to talk to us about the progression of his illness. Um, Bill Wilson starts on page five, the first paragraph. Liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. Any of you consciously remember when you were no longer drinking because you wanted to necessarily or using, you did it because you had to or compelled to? Okay. So he, he describes that Gin, two bottles a day, often three, got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I'd pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. Any of you relate to him? He talks about how he solved that. How many of you had a solution for waking early in the morning, shaking violently? What was it? Stay ahead of the curve, right? Get some more liquor. Okay. So what he said, a tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. Now he's talking about it's, he can't differentiate the true from the false. 
I drink all night, every night, till I pass out. I wake up shaking violently, and I start drinking again so I can get well enough to go out and hustle for some more. But I got this shit. Okay. And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. So how many of you had that, where you did get a little clean time? And then the wheels came off again. Okay. Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. Any of you in the midst of your addiction get a new opportunity? What happened to your new opportunity? Sometimes we pull it off for a minute. Sometimes we just... Okay. So what he said, it says, I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. So he knew he was going to have a profit. He went to celebrate the profit prior to its receipt, and the chance vanished. Okay? I woke up. This had to be stopped. Any of you relate to waking up and realizing that maybe I've taken this a little too far? Did that knowledge help? I saw that I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Notice how he invited his wife into his... Did any of you ever do that? Someone that cared about you told them what you were doing, because I really mean it. And then somewhere in the course of that day, I wish I wouldn't have told them. (laughs) They sure are going to be disappointed when this... Okay. All right. Because he did mean it until he didn't. Have you ever meant it until you didn't? Okay. So shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Well, you don't talk that way, I know, but... Do you ever end up disappointing yourself? Some of you I've talked to recently told me how disappointed you were in yourself. And, And the reality is... There's, there's nothing you could do different. If you, if you have an alcoholic body and an alcoholic mind untreated, then what you're going to do is drink and act alcoholically. Okay. Um, so I simply didn't know. It hadn't come to mind. Someone pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? How many of you suspected maybe you were a little... Questionable. I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. How many of you did the 30, 60, 90 out? Or maybe didn't make the 90? uh, The virtual impossibility of collecting a 30-day medallion was... I mean, I was like, yeah, I can't do that. But anyway... That's because after a few days, I think I'm doing it when I never had the power to do it. Confidence gets replaced, yeah? Okay, so I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. I, one day I walked into the cafe to telephone, and in no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I'd manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. Have you ever had that thought process? 
I've already, I've already blown it, but I'll just go ahead and just come off this, just go after it now. Do you realize that after you took the first one, there was like no decision in the second one? Did anyone ever explain to you why they call it the insanity of the first drink? Because the first one you didn't have any choice over either if you're really alcoholic. Because the insanity precedes the drink, which is why I would want to be spiritually fit if I didn't want to return to active addiction. Does it make sense? Sometimes we say, I made a bad choice because we want to feel better like there was some control. But I suggest to you, get up on the roof, jump off. Halfway down, say, I choose to hit the ground. See if it alters the... It's not a choice. It's just comforting to know that you picked it. Okay? So now they're going to talk about what happens after that to us. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. So how many of you had that experience remember the remorse, horror, and hopelessness? Oh, shit, again? Okay, so it is unforgettable, isn't it? Okay? The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. So he's trying to get sober at the market crash in 29, and, and it's not working out, right? Um, the market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. How many of you got to the place where you knew that you weren't ever going to stop? If I don't try again, I can't fail again. Not everybody in the room, but some of us know what I'm talking about. Okay. Should I kill myself? Any of you contemplate? Okay. Well, clearly, since we're all still here, that's not what we accomplished. So, we'll, so not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Jen would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. And then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window sash, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Any of you get to a point where the, the doctors or the paramedics were showing up wherever you were? Did they sedate you? Did you find out that was a, not such a terrible outcome? <laughs> How many of you kind of liked that whole sedation thing? Yeah. And thought, hey man, this is a whole new game I had not considered. <laughs> okay. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. So we didn't invent it, Bill did. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. Any of you had that similar experience? Yeah. People feared for my sanity, and so did I. 
I could eat little or nothing when drinking. I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. So he's talking about his encounter with William Silkworth, who wrote the opinion. Okay. So it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor. So now he's talking about mental obsession. And if we are an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, an addict of the hopeless variety, we will not win by battling with that obsession. We will strengthen the obsession, not us. So this mantra we have of, you got this, is very destructive, even though well-meaning. Does that make sense? And they've known it for 80 plus years. Um, Though it often remains strong in other respects, my incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. So that was comforting to Bill. He thought maybe he didn't have, have you ever had that, I desperately want to stop. Well, maybe I don't want to stop that bad. Perhaps I overreacted. Have you ever gotten into that whole cycle, you know, of just, why do I do this when I know it's not going to turn out well? Right? Any of you get to there? Not doing the same thing, expecting a different result. Doing the same thing, knowing exactly what the hell is going to happen. Okay. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. What does he mean? I was on top of the world. Things are going good. Yeah. Okay. So I went to town regularly, even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. So how many of you got a good dose of self-knowledge? Did it work for a while? Sometimes it works for a while, right? Okay, but it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The reason I point that out is we'll look at something before we stop tonight. It may work for a while, but there's a time coming where it will not if you're an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, an addict of the hopeless variety, which is why my ease and comfort seeking is going to lead me into trouble if I don't learn to find a new well of ease and comfort. Um, the curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. So have you ever watched anyone go off a ski jump? How many of you have restarted your addiction after some dry time and you can now relate to the metaphor? Like not only did it get bad, but it got bad quick. Okay. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker of the asylum. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. You guys get to the point where they were telling you you're dying and you told them, tell me something I don't know. Tell me when. Okay. Some of you fill in that. That's the, that's the experience of powerlessness and unmanageability. It's not conceptual. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself, my abilities, my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who'd gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There'd been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. 
No words can tell the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Any of you get to a point where you'd let everyone down, now you're completely isolated, and instead of believing that maybe you could be made new, that something could happen, you just knew, you just knew. I'm beyond redemption. Okay? Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. So when he admits to powerlessness, when he tells you he admits to powerlessness, he's telling you of that experience mentally and emotionally. Alcohol owned him. Even though he believed that he was an overcomer, he could not manage that will again. Relate to him? Whether it, whatever it was we were chasing? Okay. So trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Any of you have been sobered by fear? All of us to some extent, at least when we get started, probably. It's not a, a state we want to try and maintain, right? All right, so then came the insidious insanity of that first drink, and on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. So now he's talking about the insidious insanity of the first drink. In other words, I'm certifiably insane before I take the first drink. Everything that happens after that is what happens to a guy like me when I drink. That's not the insanity of alcoholism. That's why we don't talk about what it was like, because that's circumstantial. It was a shit show after I drank, because of the way I drank. But before I drank, I was restless, irritable, discontented, full of guilt, shame, and remorse. And I could not stand living inside of me with me. So anything was better than living in there with me, even knowing what was out there for me. Anyone get what I'm putting down? Okay. So then it goes on to tell us that that everyone had become resigned to the certainty that I'd have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. How many of you are, where's my meth addicts? You guys like anything that sounds like a catapult, right? (laughs) Give us a ride, boy. Okay. So... He tells us that he's going to be catapulted into a fourth dimension of existence. And then he tells us what the description, what he's describing, what he experienced. So that I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. A lot of people read past that. But Bill Wilson, the famous agnostic, is witnessing to you that once he accepted this and moved through it, he experienced this massive shift in him and became involved in this manner of living that produced this happiness and peace as he had never known and a a progressive recovery based on usefulness, purpose. How many of you have had a similar experience? He really did a good job with these words. Um, Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. Any of you drink alone? Okay. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected that there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. Any of you drinkers were hiders? Yeah. about the rest of you? You heroin addicts, you hiders? Not really, huh? You always needed all you had? What? 
My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle near the head of the bed. I would need it before daylight. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. That doesn't sound like much if you don't set it up, but he's talking about his friend, Ebby. And Ebby is the one guy in Bill's life that no matter how bad Bill got, at least he wasn't that bad yet. Any of you know what I'm talking about? No matter how far we ran it, at least there was somebody that was more of a shit show than me. Although, it gets hard to find him after a while, right? Okay, so that's who this guy is. So when he calls, he's cheery, and he's not drunk. That's freaking weird. So he says, it was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. So he's trying to get you to see, this is an abnormal event. This isn't what happens with Ebby. Rumor had it that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. That's how weird it is. He believed that he had been committed, but he didn't believe that he walked out on his own. He, he believed he had to have busted loose somehow. Of course, he'd have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. So do you get the metaphor he's painting? Because it could mean a number of things to different people. Many times the oasis is a mirage. True? But sometimes the oasis is actually the only place for water and rest for miles. So can you imagine that switch flipping in your mind that this friend's here and now we're going to drink, but we don't know how that's going to turn out? Okay. So then they start to describe the encounter with power and how it affects Bill even though he's drunk and drinking. The doctor opened, the door opened, and he stood there fresh-skinned and glowing. Now, I call your, to, to, no matter how pretty the prose is Bill uses, to describe your male drinking buddy as fresh-skinned and glowing is bizarre. So something is different, or I would never describe another man as fresh-skinned and glowing. It just wouldn't happen. I sure as shit wouldn't put it in a book that people could read me saying it. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different, what had happened. So he's talking about the man's condition and appearance is so radically different from what he expected that he could not get over it. He was checking the whole thing out, couldn't figure it out, and he's asking himself what had happened. I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed, but curious. So how many of you have run into somebody that was an old drinking or drug buddy, and you thought, thank God, found someone I can just cut loose with, and you push something their way, and they pushed it back, and you're like, oh, boy, what a buzzkill. <laughs> Disappointed, but curious, right? I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smilingly. He said, I've got religion. 
Now, I don't care how religious you are or how irreligious you are. If when you're drunk and drinking and your buddy shows up and he won't take a drink and you ask him why, and he tells you he's got religion, the fun meter goes, this is going to suck. We're going to get a lecture and I'm going to have to hide my drinks. Yeah? Simply but smiling, he said, I've got religion. I was aghast, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now, I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right, but bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. So his expectation is a lecture and a whole biblical lesson on the evils of demon rum. He's all set for it. He's fortifying himself. And I better get some drinks down now before this bitch starts waving his arms. Okay. But he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. For years and years and years in our fellowship, we have not told people the truth that what we have is a simple religious idea. God dwells in you. Power dwells in you. And we have a practical program of action that will prove that fact to you, through you. Simple re religious idea and a practical program of action. Why don't we deliver that message straight up? What are we hiding from? That's all we got. Okay. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. He had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. Notice how he didn't come to pass his meeting list or his sponsor's phone number, any knowledge. He came to pass the experience on. What he, Bill didn't know, as he had already had the experience, the minute the man walked in, the presence of God met him right at the door, and that's why he saw that inexplicable portrait of a man sitting before him. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed, my grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folks and their doings, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past, and they made me swallow hard. Now he's talking about a movement of the spirit that forced an emotional reaction to him. So as he's talking about his grandfather's fearlessness, his grandfather told the preacher, I refuse to let you tell me how to worship my God. He stood face to face and gave truth to power. Even though he was dying, he was going to meet a maker his theologian did not know, or he wouldn't have been talking to him the way he was talking to him. Does that make sense? And when Bill had that recollection, he says it made him swallow hard. Have you ever just been talking and then all of a sudden had a revelation and you had an emotional response that you did not see coming? Yes. So that's what happens when the Spirit moves within us 
And that's what Bill's talking about, the tangible power we call God, manifesting itself as a revelation in him. Some of you have had that experience, right? Okay. So then it said, I'd always believed in a power greater than myself. I'd often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means a blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists and the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much of precise and immutable law and no intelligence? So he's just asking us to question our beliefs and see what we really think we believe, given that he had his completely rearranged, right? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, and that was as far as I had gone. With ministers in the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated, and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. Have you ever had that response? So he was shutting himself off to the possibility of a personal relationship with his creator. Does that make sense? Um, I'm going to jump from there because I want to be down in the middle of the next page, 11. But my friend sat before me and he made the point-blank declaration that God, power, had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Remember, Bill's doctor had just pronounced him incurable. So he's listening with intent. This man has message of depth and weight. There's something about his eyes. He's fresh-skinned and glowing. He's inexplicably different. He's worse than me, and he's standing before me completely restored, and he's just telling me in a matter-of-fact way how that was accomplished. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. So what are they telling us about admission? By itself, it's not enough. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to the better, taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he'd ever known. Have you ever heard the argument about whether we recover or we're recovering? To be recovered is to be raised from the dead, to be taken from a scrap heap and raised to a level of life better than the best we've ever known. It is a it is a redemption. It's a mining term, not a medical term. It wasn't a medical diagnosis back then. So we're talking about a reclaimed life when we talk about recovered. Um, and if you don't believe me, read the instructions, and you'll find that 17 times in the instructions, they say recovered, not recovering, and they only say recovering twice, and that's in the chapter to the wives about the still-drinking alcoholic. So it says, um, had this power originated in him? He's going inward. Obviously it did not. There'd been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. So now he knew that Ebby had gained access to power, and Ebby was bearing witness to him of the redemption he had had, and he knew for a fact that that man was indeed as hopeless as him, or more so. Yes? Okay. So I want to jump from there because let's go to page 12, middle of that page. So he went through 
some of the step experience and what have you, and, and then he left him. He says, my friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. Why don't you choose your own conception of God? A lot of people in the fellowships have said, just pick any conception you like, and that's a deception. This is precise instructions of where and how to find the power, how we'll recognize the power. We'll look at all that next week. Where do we find the power? Deep down inside. How do we find it? Sometimes we have to search fearlessly. How do we recognize it? Power, peace, happiness, sense of direction flowing into me. If that's not happening, then you've been duped. So we don't, we start with your conception, then we introduce you to power, and then we invite you to walk with us and prove the power to you, through you. Make sense? Okay. Um, that statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. So the statement in and of itself, with the description of a solution that made sense, a process, was enough for Bill to start having this radical experience. So he goes on to say, it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. Where's my folks that study that other book? We know that's true. If you're willing to believe, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, then that isn't where we stop, though, is it? Right? Now we got to follow, we better get to running, right? Okay. Um, I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon the foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, which means the foundation is that upon which I stand. It is not in me. So it flows into me, but it's not of me. It's willingness is divine power. Make sense? Okay. So thus I was convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. At long last I saw... Ebby, the miracle sitting in front of me. I felt all the revelations of the Spirit that are happening as I'm having this conversation. Remember, I'm drunk and drinking while this is happening. And I believed. So no one has ever been expected to believe in 12-step recovery without a tangible demonstration of the power. We cheat you to talk to you about the power we call God without a demonstration of the power. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes, a new world came into view. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me. What was his experience in the cathedral? He was going to war, and he saw the gravestone of an old soldier who drank himself to death. And he had survived war, but drank himself to death. And so the real significance is he had this profound experience of the Spirit, he went to war. Now he's in New York many years later drinking himself to death. The spirit was with him then. The spirit's with me now. Power. To this day, right? So um, for a brief moment I'd needed and wanted God. There'd been a humble willingness to have him with me and he came. But soon his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors. Most of those within myself and so it had been ever since how blind I had been. So I'm going to stop right there. He's had his encounter. The next set of steps is going to be what to do with that encounter, how to recognize that encounter, and how to improve consciousness of that encounter. Thanks very much.